Jesus loves me, this I know. family. Heart's heavy. It's one of those things, right, we've known as a church that When it hits you, it hits you in a new way, right? Even different this service than first. And I just, I'm, I'm kind of, I just keep getting overwhelmed by the, the fact that we have a God who, you can read this in John 11 this afternoon, who when his friend dies is not cold, is not callous, but he weeps with his friends. And he weeps over death. Knowing that three verses later, he's going to command a dead man to come back to life. Wow. We have a God who weeps with us in our sadness. And who has victory over all things that make us sad. Wow. And so this morning, if you're, if you're a guest, welcome to the family. If you're the family, here we are. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And even in moments of grief, we grieve in this really strange way that is hopeful. Because if Jesus was dead and is now alive, then all those who are in Jesus have that same promise that one day we will be raised to life and death does not have final word. Amen? Because Jesus lives Debbie's right now more alive than we can imagine. Because she sees Jesus face to face. What an amazing day that will be. Wow. If you're a little confused this morning, 
you're hurt, if you're sad, that's okay. That's all of those I feel and about 400 other emotions that I don't have words for. But know, friends, this morning that you have a God who is near to you, who loves you, who is gentle and compassionate, who is right there with you in all of those things that we walk through. All of those emotions, all those questions, he is with us. And may that peace this morning guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Before we kind of get into God's word this morning, can, we, can I pray for us again? Lord Jesus, you know where we are this morning. You know the hurt. You know sadness. You know it very intimately because you became like one of us. What humility, what love, that you would become like us to rescue us. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to be closer to you. You're amazing. We've never met anyone like you. So strengthen us this morning. Show us yourself. Be, be close to us. Be compassionate and gracious to us. And may in our sadness, may we find you to be more beautiful, more life-giving, more amazing than we thought even when we came in this morning. Use our time, even in your word this morning, by your spirit, to change us, to shape us and make us like Jesus. Show us your love. Show us your grace this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If, um, so, kids, those of you that are in here, uh, welcome. If uh, parents, you were sitting here thinking, I was not ready for my kids to be in the service, uh, we know, and we're sorry. When we found out this morning at about 8, uh, 15 or so, uh, there's a lot of kind of scrambling to do, but we do have uh, a, it's actually a really good book. It's a coloring book version of it in the, uh, right out back there. So if any ushers want to jump up and maybe ready, uh, kids, if you want to go grab one, and if any of you big kids would like one as well, um, it's a book that's called Goodbye to Goodbyes. It's done by Lauren Chandler, and this is a coloring book version of it, and there's some crayons and pencils out there if you want to go grab one of those. Um, walks through the story of John 11 uh, in the reality of what we just uh, talked about. Should we try this? <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to grab them. We will be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where we want to learn and see more of who this God is, right? That's why we study God's word. That's why we preach. That's why we remind ourselves of the truth of who God is because he is real and he is present in times of need. And so we want to lean into that. We want to search the scriptures because they reveal who God is and we want to know his heart. And we want to see him more clearly. And so this morning, we're going to continue the series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, as you can see on the screen behind me, called God's New Humanity, where we're studying one of the largest, and it's the largest block of Jesus' teaching that we have recorded in Scripture. 
where Jesus is describing what, it's, what he has come to create, that by his death and his resurrection, uh, he, he will create this new humanity, uh, this new way of thinking about the world, this new life with new worldview and new priorities and values. And we come to this morning uh, in chapter 5, this large section that is connected to a very important topic that you see throughout all of Scripture, and it's connected to this idea of the law. And this week, we're really going to divide the rest of the chapter into two weeks. This morning, we're really going to be talking about what is our general approach and our posture towards God's law and obedience and his commands. And next week, Pastor Bill will walk us through the rest of the chapter as we look at some individual ways that that works its way out in relationship to different uh, specific laws. Um, and so this is, a, this is a, an incredibly rich and full topic and passage. So let's hear the word of the Lord together from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Before we kind of walk our way back through this passage and see what Jesus is really doing in it, we want to step back just for a moment and think about this idea of the law, which is really permeated throughout this entire passage. When you hear the word law, what do you think of? I would imagine most of us think uh, a list of rules. We think the Ten Commandments or the first five books of the Old Testament. But more importantly than what you think about, how do you feel when you hear the law? What, what emotion is there in that word? Because there's usually a lot built up into it. For many in the church, law is a dirty word. It's something that's a burden on us that we need to get rid of. It's some sort of chain that holds us down. It's something we talked about negatively, conjures shame, because we think that if we step out of line and break one of those laws or commands, then God will be angry with us, disappointed in us. And for many outside the church, that idea of a list of rules is exactly what religion is in general. It's just a list of rules where some God who may or may not exist just wants to put down uh, oppressive rules that will hinder all my fun and just wants to have control over me. It's a control issue where all God cares about is uh, my behavior. I just need to get in line and do what I'm told. The problem is that's not really a good way to think about the law. When I think about the law, it may kind of sound strange to you, but I'll explain it. I think about Thor. Um, Chris Hemsworth, the actor who plays Thor. And here's why. I want you to imagine, let's just pretend that I have been really hitting the gym hard. You, please laugh, it makes me feel a little bit better. Let's pretend I've been really working out. And I feel like I'm getting, you know, toned and in shape and all this stuff. And I wake up one morning and I roll out of bed and I have a good hair day. 
Again, this is just all hypothetical. <laughs> and I'm standing in front of a mirror, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself, but in our house walks Thor, walks Chris Hemsworth. If you're not a Chris Hemsworth Thor guy, you can pick whoever you want. Captain America, you can just take, take your person who has got it all. Ladies, you got to find your own example. You're on your own on this, okay? But imagine someone who you feel like epitomizes manliness or what it means to be a woman has just got it all. I mean, think about Thor. He's got the hair. He's got the muscles. He's, you know, got the accent. Should I stop man-crushing now? (laughs) But as I'm standing there, I was feeling pretty good about myself until he walked in. And now as we're both looking at the same mirror, I don't feel too hot anymore. I don't feel too amazing In fact, that's what happens when you're with someone who's more beautiful than you. You feel exposed. You feel almost naked, inadequate. You feel like you're not enough. You feel uh, their looks actually condemn you. Their good-lookingness exposes your lack of, at least in your own mind. And that's what happens. This happens in all these other areas, too. When you're around someone who's smarter than you, you feel stupid. When you're around someone who's rich, you feel poor. Someone who's funny, you feel boring. When you're around someone who's more popular, you feel lonely and kind of pathetic. You feel inadequate. You're exposed and condemned by just their presence. This is why if you have a social media account, you know what that feeling is like, because we're constantly comparing ourselves to everyone else, but it's a filtered version of them. You always feel condemned. That's why they're finding that the rate of depression and anxiety is directly correlated to the level of social media use, and that's not what we're talking about this morning. Imagine, though, you are standing not next to Thor or whoever, whatever person you're thinking of, but you're standing and comparing yourself to the definition of perfection, to God himself, because that's what the law is. The law is much more than just a list of rules. It's actually a revelation of God himself. In the book of Psalms, there's an entire chapter devoted to the law of God. It's Psalm 119. It's the largest of the entire chapters in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And nearly every single one of the 176 verses in it has a direct reference to God's law, his command, his ways, his statutes, all these synonyms. I actually really encourage you to sit down this afternoon and read it or tomorrow at some point this week or take you 15 minutes to read through it. And in this psalm, you'll find that it explains a lot and gives a lot of meat on what God's law is. That simple phrase gives a lot of definition to it. And it does it in a unique way, because Hebrew poetry has a, has a technique that's different than English poetry. English poetry rhymes words and sounds, right? That's why Dr. Seuss makes no sense, but sounds good. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, it rhymes ideas. And so it takes several ideas and puts them in parallel with each other to either show contrast or similarities or explain or build on, but it rhymes ideas. For example, in Psalm 119, 149, the psalmist says, Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. And he's using this technique that's called synonymous parallelism, which is a really big word, which means he's saying the same things in both lines. Line two is designed to help you understand better what line one means. 
So when a psalmist says, hear my voice, he's not just asking God to listen, he's asking God to act. act. Hear my voice and act to preserve my life. But look at what he parallels at the end, which is more in line with what we're doing this morning. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. He parallels the law of God with the love of God. And if you read the rest of Scripture, especially Psalm 119 and the rest of the Psalter, you'll find that God's law is synonymous with his person, his character, his love, God himself. In other words, the law is not a dirty word. In fact, it's the most beautiful, glorious thing in the entire world because it's a reflection. It shows us, it reveals to us who God is, which is why earlier in that chapter, the psalmist says, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. He's not saying, I love to memorize your list of rules. He's saying, I love you, the one whom the law reveals. Is that how you think about God's word? Is that how you think about his law? Is there this love inside for it? Uh, in this book called a Hole in Our, The Hole in Our Holiness, uh, author Kevin DeYoung describes it this way. He says, God's law is an expression of his grace because it's also an expression of his character. The commands show us what God is like, what he prizes, what he detests, what it means to be holy as God is holy. It shows us who God is. It shows us who we are as God's creation made in his image. This is not God trying to oppress us and take away all the fun and joy in our life. It's actually God as creator saying, this is the way to fullness of joy and life. It's his grace. The law is always good. It's the sinfulness of our human hearts that's the issue. It's our inability to keep the law that leaves us exposed and condemned in the presence of God. Let me give you an example of that. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul goes on to say, uh, without the law, the law's not bad, I would not have known what sin was unless the law came. But what happens is when God speaks a law, the sin inside of me springs to life, and what was supposed to bring life actually brings death. Here's an example of what I mean by that. Imagine you're walking on a campus or you know, a business park or a park itself, and you see a sign that says, no skateboarding allowed. Um, anyone want to take a guess as to what is going on in my heart right now? What do I want to do? I don't even know how to skateboard, but I want to. I would love to just go get a skateboard and show them, because who are they to tell me what I can and can't do, right? That, that instinct comes in all, inside all of us. When you see a law... And that doesn't mean that this law is bad. In fact, this law probably has some very good reasons as to why they don't want you skateboarding in this certain area. But what it does do is it exposes the corruption in my own heart that says, you are not the boss of me. I want to be my own God. I want to make my own law. I want to be in charge. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now, let's imagine, let's keep this story going. Let's imagine I'm on the skateboard because I just want to show them, and I fall because I inevitably would, and I break my arm, and I go to the doctor, and I get an x-ray done, and I come out of getting that x-ray, and my arm still hurts, and it's still broken, and I start to get mad at the machine. What would you all say to me? I'm not using the the x-ray machine properly, am I? 
The machine was never designed to fix my arm. It was simply there to show me the reality of what it is, to reveal what is true. One of the primary ways that we use the law improperly, which actually leaves us angry at the law, is that we expect that by the law we can climb a ladder to get right with God. The problem is the law was never designed to fix the problem that exists. That's something that only grace could do. That only the person of Jesus and his work and his death and his burial and his resurrection could do. It's only by grace that we can be saved. This law was never designed to fix what's wrong. So then the question becomes, what do we do with it now? This is where Jesus speaks very clearly. What do we do with the law as part of this new humanity, saved by grace, restored to God through Christ and his resurrection? Listen to what he says again, verse 17 to 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, least, uh, I'm sorry, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And throughout Jesus' entire life, he was constantly being challenged about his understanding of the law, about his obedience to the law. They were always trying to trap him. His enemies were always trying to pin him into a place where he would, con- he would speak poorly against the law or break it, and they wanted to trap him in that. And so Jesus makes his position very clear. Don't think, not even for a second, that I don't highly value and submit myself to the law of God. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. When we hear fulfillment, we often think like a to-do list where you check it off and it's, it's done. It's finished. The problem is that's not what Jesus is doing here. He did come and live a perfect life in full submission and obedience to the law of God in every possible way. But that's not really what he's saying here. Notice that he contrasts two words, abolish and fulfill. And both of them are purpose words. In other words, if I'm going to rephrase what I think Jesus is saying here, is he's saying, don't think that I've come to destroy or to annul or to disintegrate the law, to say that it has no purpose. I'm not throwing it away. I've come to be the purpose for the law. I am the fulfillment. I am the purpose of the law. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every single story whispers his name, which means when you read about Moses, you find yourself longing for a better prophet like Moses, but better. You read about David and you think David's great, but can't wait for the true Davidic king. All finds its fulfillment, all culminates in the person of Christ. All of scripture culminates in Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He gives purpose to it. He says, I have come to bring purpose to the law. So it's not trash. In fact, not even the smallest letter will disappear. To help you think about it, maybe think about the way an athlete approaches games and practice. What's the point of practice? Just for the sake of practice? No, it's fulfilled in the games. But unless you're talking about practice, like maybe Helen Iverson was a couple years ago, if you know that story. The practice still matters. We don't do away with practice. It's fulfilled. It finds its fulfillment in in the game. 
This has two massively important implications for us, and I want to talk about both of them briefly this morning. Number one has to do with our purpose. If Jesus is the fulfillment and the purpose of the law and the prophets of all of Scripture, then he is the purpose of our lives as well. You see, in the law, we find that God made provision for people to have their sins atoned for through the sacrificial system. And he gave instructions on how people could maintain ritual purity to be in his presence, all of which are pointing to when Jesus would come and offer himself as a sacrificial lamb, bringing full forgiveness for sins and making, himself, making in himself a, a pure person. New humanity is what we're talking about. All of it looks forward to Jesus. Every bit of scripture, you could go through every detail of the law and find that its purpose is in Jesus. In John 5, he says, you study scriptures diligently because you think that in them, in scriptures, you have eternal life, but these scriptures testify about me. Which means that if everything finds its purpose in Jesus, then that would be our purpose as well. Beyond doing the right things, beyond having information about Jesus... Philippians 3 says, what I consider is that everything, all of that is a loss compared to one thing, and that is to know Christ. We have to be very careful because where we sit now, it's very easy for us to think about that in an intellectual way. Paul is not just saying that what's most important is that you have some information about Jesus, but that you know Jesus, but that there's intimacy, there is a growing love for Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not that you have some information or some right answers, but that you have a growing love and intimacy with Jesus. It's actually more about the bedroom than it is the classroom. And that's really what it's been about all along. This past fall, we spent a lot of time meditating on Jesus' answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? And the answer, love the Lord your God. Love others. Love is the fulfillment of the law, which means that that is what Jesus wants from you. Beyond any obedience, beyond anything, he wants your heart. The reality is when he has your heart, he will have the rest of you as well. Which leads to the second implication, which is that if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, that that reshapes the way that we think about obedience and God's commands. See, Jesus just said that if that, that the law will not disappear until heaven and earth disappear. Another way of saying when hell freezes over or when pigs fly or whatever phrase you want to imagine that says never, it's not going to happen. It won't disappear. Therefore, he says in verse 19, anyone who sets aside the one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which means that as God's newly made, reborn people, we don't come to his grace, we don't come to the law with the mentality of, well, Jesus saved me, so now I don't have to obey. In fact, that type of attitude is very strongly condemned in the book of Romans. Should we go on sinning so that grace can keep growing? No. If that's your mentality, it shows very clearly that you've missed the whole heart of Christ. You've missed the relational element to this. You ought to go back and revisit what grace is. But Jesus also goes on in the next verse to say it's not about obedience simply for the sake of obedience. 
He says in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been shocking to everyone sitting down. Everyone listening to him. Because if in, in that day, if they would have imagined the people who were the best at obeying the law, they would have thought of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In fact, these guys were so good at obeying, they created extra laws to guard and to fence the law of God so that they wouldn't break even their own laws. They were so obedient, they made extra laws. But the problem was they missed the point at all, altogether. Listen to how Jesus talks about these people in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28, just a little bit later. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Their, their righteousness, in air quotes, was all about just displaying some sort of facade on the outside. There was no love. Simply external behavior. Which is why Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that. It must be greater than that. It's not just obedience for obedience sake. There has to be a better kind of righteousness that starts in the inside of you, changes who you are, and works its way out into your life. One commentator said, this is not Jesus encouraging us to beat the Pharisees at their own game, but it's a totally new kind of righteousness. And the question is, well, where do we get that kind of righteousness? One that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Do you remember a couple minutes ago when we were talking about the nature of the law that condemns by comparison? Thinking about me and Thor, right? And it said that just being in his presence would actually condemn me. Being in the presence of the law, we find ourselves condemned. And yet on the other hand, it's also beautiful and it's kind of confusing. How does this paradox work? Well, there's a story in John chapter 8. It's one of my favorites in the entire Bible. In John chapter 8, Jesus' enemies are trying to trap Jesus, and they come to him, and they bring a woman to him who had been caught in the act of adultery. Just the woman, no idea where the man is. And she's dragged, and she's thrown in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees think they have Jesus trapped now, because they look at Jesus and they say, okay, we caught her in the act of adultery. Here's what Moses says we should do with her. We should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Before the law of God, this woman was condemned. And yet Jesus does something that's amazing. Jesus stoops down to the ground, and he begins to write in the dirt. And the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what he did. But there's a passage in the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, verse 13, it says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. 
if I use my sanctified imagination here, I imagine Jesus squats down and he starts to write in the dirt. And he starts to look around and he starts to write the names of the individuals that are standing around there. Because the Bible goes on to say that starting from the oldest down to the youngest, they began to walk away. The ones who came to condemn her now left silent. Until at last, the only two that are left are this woman and Jesus. And Jesus picks up her face. He says, look around. Who's here to condemn you? The answer is no one. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. I thought the law condemned. But Jesus, the fool, the, the one on whom the fullness of God dwelt, came to earth for one purpose. And that's that he would become condemned in our place. That he, the one who matched perfectly with that law, the one who is the law, the one who is parallel and synonymous with the law, the God revealed would become a curse for us. He would be condemned under this law. Why? So that you and I could be free, free from the burden of sin, free from the weight of shame, that you could be free, free to go and sin no more. Jesus came so that you could be free and that he would be condemned. And do you know what that does to us? When that becomes real for you, what that does is that love, that grace, that act of kindness done to you changes you. It gives you what the prophet Jeremiah predicted years before. He gives you the new covenant, which Jim read earlier. Actually, Al read it earlier. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will put myself in their hearts. And what happens is, when you've experienced that love, you're transformed. His love for you awakens your love for him in response. And we have this new posture towards the law that agrees with the psalmist that says, I love your law. Your law reveals who I am. Your law reveals who you are, and it's beautiful. Because we're resting on grace in our standing before God, but our hearts are changed and given this desire to obey. Which means that this morning, if you find yourself with a desire to submit to the Lord, if you find yourself loving God's word with a desire to meditate on it day and night and to obey it, not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer, then be encouraged because that is a sign of the new humanity. That is a sign that you have been reborn. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Not because you're trying to make yourself right with me and not just as some mere external show, 
but because your heart has been transformed. And when you find yourself falling short, it's not a eh response. But as we learned a couple weeks ago in the Beatitudes, we are those who mourn our sin. We grieve over our own sin. We're full of repentance. But we go from here, transformed by the grace and love of Christ into people who have a desire to follow Christ and to be obedient to him. And as we learned last week, we go to let our light shine before others so they may see your good deeds, they may see your obedience and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. You have rescued us and you're at your, the way you see us is amazing. That you would come, take on human flesh so that you could be condemned so that we might go free. And Lord, we don't want to use our freedom to indulge in sin, but we want to use our freedom to honor you, to love you in return, to be people who are eager to obey, eager to live lives in submission to you because you are God, because you are good. So Lord, draw us closer to yourself. Make us people who are obedient to you so that the world would see and taste your goodness in the ways that we have. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.